0: The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the
1: hour of action. It's time for the John DiPietro Show. Here on News Talk, WNRI, 1380 AM and 99.9 and 95.1 FM. He's a special kind of sentinel. Mr. DiPietro, who is in the eye of the storm. Suddenly, John DiPietro became the story. Radio talk show host, John DiPietro. All right, here we go, folks. Welcome. The power hour has arrived. Good afternoon. At all. Here I am, it's Juan. Hi there, Janet This There's Mike Cunningham. This portion of the John DePietro program is brought to you by K's. Remember, lunch, dinner, or oh, drinks in the lounge. Stop by K's, they're waiting for you. Well, folks, we have a lot of uh, legal elements to get to. Let's bring him on. He is our legal expert, Rhode Island top attorney. Good afternoon to Tim Dodd. Good afternoon, Tim Dodd.
0: Hi, John. Good afternoon to you.
1: Let's start off. Uh, Roger Stone has been sentenced to 40 months uh, there was a lot of talk about this initially, the sentencing guidelines that they were looking at, I believe, was far more severe, eight, nine years. Uh, what what is, uh, Tim Dodd's read on Roger Stone getting 40 months? I think
0: that it was reasonably expected that that would be the range that the judge would um, sentence Roger Stone to. Clearly, um, The judge had a lot of problems with Roger Stone during the course of the trial. She had problems with um, the charge. She had problems with Roger Stone continuing to speak out pre-trial, during trial. She ultimately issued a gag order to prevent the guy from saying anything to try to defend himself in the media. Um, Even after the verdict, there was still a gag order. So he's not free to express himself Um, She seems to have, you know, unhidden disdain for Roger Stone. Um, I think she would have sentenced him to more but for the brouhaha about the whole um, upward departure that the federal prosecutors were looking for. Now, I haven't read anything. I just heard the blurb driving to the office to um, get on air with you. But I, I think she's issued a decision as to what the sentence will be, but I don't think it's a sentence to yet be executed because of the motions of defense counsel for a new trial based upon what's clearly, it seems to me, clearly um, improper conduct in the jury room, uh, bias that was uncovered by one of the jurors, especially the jury foreman, Um, and I think that that conduct of that jury foreman and the bias that that jury foreman clearly had, um, if the judge really drills down into that issue, I think it would necessitate calling a mistrial and that Roger Stone would be entitled to a new trial. So I don't think he's going to jail yet. I don't think the sentence has been executed yet, meaning, okay, you're off to jail now. I think that she's not going to do those things, I predict unless and until she makes a decision on defense counsel's motion for mistrial. It sounds like in such a high-stakes case, we discussed it last week, that defense counsel, I don't think, did a great job of vetting the jurors or looking at their social media or really exploring who these potential jurors were. Um, The foreman had an open animosity towards... um, President Trump and all things Trumpian, um, that should have been picked up by defense counsel. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this um, jury foreman is also a licensed attorney. Um, I don't care if you do closings or if you're in courtroom litigating or if you're doing something else. Um, As an officer of the court, if you've got a clear bias, I think you're obligated to let the court know of the of the clear bias and I think the judge is waiting to find out if that bias notwithstanding if that bias did anything to influence this jury or this foreman so the foreman's going to say no I wasn't I don't like the president but I wasn't biased at all judge I was completely even-handed and objective so if the judge buys that I guess she won't order a new trial but the, the paper trail and the social media paper trail of this foreman uh, is rather extensive. So it sounds to me like a mistrial should be called in this case and a new trial conducted. That remains to be seen.
1: I'm reading, uh, Tim Dodd, that the judge... I'm going to read uh, uh, verbatim. She's delaying execution of his sentence while she considers his motion for a new trial. I, I'm just... Um, and the president's already hinting at a pardon. I, I'm just starting to wonder if he's ever going to do any time in jail.
0: I it, it's doubt. I mean, the president could pardon him. We've we've seen the president in action this week oh, yeah. pardoning um, a, a number of different individuals. But as far as Roger Stone goes, um, it seems to me Roger Stone is such a lightning rod that the president's going to let this play out. I mean, if the judge were to call a mistrial and order a new trial, um, I don't know why the president would um, expend political capital um, pardoning Stone prematurely. I think he would wait and see what the new trial uh, results in. Would it be a conviction? Would it be an acquittal? Um, I don't think the president needs politically to jump the gun on this one and wait to see how things play out. If the judge doesn't order a new trial, and the judge executes the sentence and says, okay, Roger, it's time for you to go to jail, then the, then the president might act. But I think he'd be ill-advised to do so prematurely.
1: Tim Dodd, can you just touch on, uh, so people understand what's involved when someone is pardoned? We you know, heard about Bernard Carrick. We heard about Michael Milken. People hear about it. Uh, Eddie DeBartolo, uh the president, did pardon a number of people. Um... I, I don't think, though, a lot of it is, is is explained about. For instance, you know, uh, none of those people are in jail right now. So, and then there there were other examples. I know that Mark Wahlberg, I think, he was trying to get uh, a presidential pardon for when he had been arrested when he was a youth in Dorchester. But could you just touch on what it means? What what really happened with those people that they got a, received a presidential pardon?
0: Well, there's a few different elements, and uh, remembering that uh, all of these. Um, Um, tools at the president's disposal are only for federal offenses. The the president can't act for state offenses where there's been a a state finding of guilt and a state um, determination for incarceration only at the federal level. But if there's a presidential pardon, that essentially forgives the criminal offense. It doesn't expunge the criminal record as we know in the in the federal system, you can never get an expungement, but uh, you're pardoned regarding that criminal offense. So you can walk around saying, "I've been pardoned." You know, so the 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 guilt determination from that um, crime is erased. It still shows up on your on your record that you were charged with it, but you're pardoned. The uh, when. If you receive clemency or a commutation, let's look at Rod uh, Blagojevich. He wasn't pardoned, his sentence was commuted I believe, which means, okay, you were served to 14 years in jail, you've served seven or eight, I'm gonna commute the remaining portion of the time you should be serving so that you don't have to serve it. It's like an early get out of jail card that was given to Blagojevich. So all he did, I believe, in that case was commute the sentence, not pardon the conduct, but just commute and make unnecessary um, Blagojevich's need to serve the time in jail. He simply doesn't have to serve the balance of his time. Um, the same would be true, uh, commutation is many times mixed with the word clemency. Um, when, if clemency is granted, again, it's a get-out-of-jail-early uh, ticket, so you don't have to serve the full sentence. So, if you've been found guilty of a crime, you'd prefer to get a pardon, but if you don't want to spend your years in jail, you'll take a commutation or clemency all day long. Um, There's slightly different um, tools that the President has. Pardon being a more comprehensive, cover the waterfront, um, it excuses the criminal conduct which was previously alleged or for which you were convicted as opposed to a commutation, which is simply a get-out-of-jail-early card.
1: Right. I want to, um, again, folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. We're speaking with our legal expert, Tim Dodd. Tim, I want to touch on, people hear a lot about former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And last night on the stage, it was in full display, and they talk about this whole stop-and-frisk policy that when he was the mayor of New York... Now. When people go underneath it, I don't think a lot of people recognize what's involved. Why? I don't know why he's apologizing. It was, it was something he, the way I understand it and remember, he kind of came into it. I was literally living in New York City when Giuliani and Bratton took over. They started the broken window policing policy, meaning that you have to stop off little crimes that gravitate to become... There's a progression towards larger crimes. And one of the parts of that was stop and frisk now it really took off under bloomberg but it was an effective policing tool but it's come under tremendous fire now if you wouldn't mind tim dodge just touching on the basic premise i think there's another term for stop and frisk i think it's something about the kelly or something like that but if you would just touch on that for us
0: you know, stop and frisk is the uh result Terry so that's US, Terry yeah yeah the US Supreme Court in 1968 issued this, issued a decision in the case of Terry versus Ohio so now it's typically called a Terry stop or a Terry search where and frankly Rhode Island has a statute directly on point it's general law 12-7-1 which allows for the temporary detention of suspects in Rhode Island just to start there an officer can um, make inquiry of somebody for whom there's a reasonable suspicion that they may be involved in criminal activity Um, and based upon the answer to the questions if they have a reasonable suspicion can conduct a pat-down a frisk Um, it's not necessary that the suspect be placed under arrest for that frisk to occur the frisk can occur upon reasonable suspicion. And that's essentially what Terry provides for. Um, You have the limited ability as a a police officer, um, and if you think there's reasonable cause, um, to inquire, to ask questions, and maybe to do a pat-down, which is a frisk. In Rhode Island, you can only hold and detain and ask questions or frisk for up to two hours. After two hours, if you're the investigating officer, you've either got to A, arrest, or B, release. I'm not sure if there's a two-hour window in um, uh, New York, but just to give it a little local context. So the policy that was in place in New York was completely legal. Now, if there was a departmental um, written or unwritten rule, hey, we're going to racially profile, Well, that would be a violation of federal law. You cannot racially profile. Um, The way Mike Bloomberg used to answer questions in a very offhand, uh, disparaging way, uh, we just go to the certain neighborhoods and we round up all the black guys between 17 and 25, and boom, there's there's the people that we should be looking at. I mean, he basically said they were profiling without saying the words. should he have stopped the program I guess politically was it illegal what was going on um, it was legal up to the point that they were profiling and if they were profiling then it's wrong now he's backpedaling saying I was wrong I never should have done it etc I mean one answer that he might have given if you know his handlers had him come up with a different answer this instead of just apologizing, like people seem to do, I mean, one answer might have been, and I, I'm, not, I'm not promoting or advocating for racial profiling, but you could say, hey, listen, I went into those neighborhoods because I was trying to protect that community. I was trying to protect those citizens from the violence and the guns, et cetera, that seemed to permeate um, those neighborhoods. So I was doing it to try to protect, not to single out and get people charged. Now, that's a tightrope, and maybe he's not um, adept at walking such a tightrope. Maybe he figured it's easier just to say, I'm sorry, and move on. But he's not going to get away with that. Essentially, to answer your question, what was happening in New York was based upon a U.S. Supreme Court case. And I'm certain there would have been a local statute in New York that provided for stop-and-frisk, just like there is in Rhode Island. Did they go too far? Maybe. Could the program have been maintained if they had simply changed some of the rules or when the cops could engage or where, where, what neighborhoods were impacted? They probably could have, but politically there was a firestorm and minority communities were up in arms, uh, rightly or wrongly so. Saying we're being singled out. Right. Um, apparently, the program was very effective. Right. Um, it did get a lot of guns, weapons, drugs off the street, but it also resulted in a lot of folks being stopped and frisked who were not guilty of anything, which caused you know outrage in the, those particular communities. So, I guess there were two approaches: one, abandon it and let crime resurface, or two. Try to modify it, rein it in, come up with better uh, restrictions and enforcement policies, and um, keep it going. Um, Bloomberg in New York chose the first. Um, perhaps they would have been more effectively served by the latter, but that was not pursued.
1: And Tim, just so we're clear, and again, folks, good afternoon. It's, uh, it's John DePincher with our legal expert, Tim Dodd. But a lot of people may not recognize, now this is the way i this was done in high crime areas, and we're going to make it local. So let's talk about an area of Rhode Island where there is a lot of crime, and that is parts of Providence, and maybe it's the Oneyville section or South Providence. But you and I are two cops on the beat, and we see two young guys coming down the street, and I recognize one of them that maybe I've encountered before, I've questioned before, uh, I have reason to believe he's a member of a gang, under stop and frisk. We tell them to stop, and I instruct them to get up against the wall, and I do a pat-down to check them for weapons. I talk to them, where you going, where were you last night, maybe there was a crime of some kind. My point is, I don't have a warrant, um, they can claim they want a, an attorney, but under stop-and-frisk... We are allowed to pat down those two suspects, and if they have a weapon, obviously, we can confiscate it and then arrest them. But I can pat him down to see whether or not maybe this is someone that I believe have credible information that they may have been involved with some kind of a gang, gang war or shooting or whatever it may be. But um, a lot of people don't realize that, that we do, they do have, you and I would have the right to stop and frisk, pat down those two individuals.
0: Well, yes, and in your scenario, you said that the guys were known to you, yes. so you would have a reasonable suspicion okay. to to conduct a further inquiry, to yep. ask questions. What's not appropriate is if two officers out on the beat in those neighborhoods you described say, all right, listen, here's what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, any, any minority male that we see between 18 and 25, no matter who, we're stopping, we're asking, we're frisking. Right. Can't do that. Right. And I think that's what the fear was, that the program had devolved into that or something close to that in New York, which would clearly not be acceptable and would not be something that any mayor or administration could tolerate. They would have to either stop it, correct it, modify it. Uh, Bloomberg chose to jettison it.
1: I just After, Before we okay. move on, um, one thing I noticed, him I think it hit its peak in 2011. They stopped and frisked, I think, close to 700,000 Individuals compared to just, I think, last year, it was down to 10,000. So the program has really taken a hit. But I think something that's not pointed out enough, and then we'll move on. But they're not doing this, just so people understand. I mean, this is not, by and large, on Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue. There's high crime areas of New York. There's parts of Flatbush, Brooklyn. There's parts of the Bronx. There's parts of Harlem. There's certain parts of Queen. There's heavy crime, uh, heavy crime areas, And that's primarily, they found, that by confiscating weapons and taking, you know, it's not a 70-year-old woman walking down the street. You you go to T.F. Green Airport and they have the grandmother pulled out of line and they're doing the wand on her. These are primarily, they're young, they're male individuals, and they found by doing that in high-crime areas, it, it seemed to be an effective program.
0: And and it was. And, you know, the problem with a program like that is statistics can be manipulated to give any result that the uh, formulator of the statistics wants. Um, So many of the folks complaining about stop and frisk in New York City were saying, well, wait a minute, don't hold me to the numbers, but 45% of the population is minority, but 70% of those being stopped and frisked or minorities, so in a population where a much smaller percentage of people are minorities, why is it such a high percentage of people being stopped and frisked? So that's as looking at statistics. You'd have to really parse those statistics and say, well, what neighborhoods uh, were the stop and frisk um, encounters occurring in? If it's the high crime neighborhood, of course it's gonna produce a disproportionate result statistically, but you know, Many times in the headlines, I recall back when this was all going on, the statistic would be population versus number of people stopped, not neighborhoods. So, you know, as, as W.C. Field said, there are liars, dim liars, and statisticians. So <laughs> right. you can be a statistician and create any result you want for any anything you're trying to prove. And I think that the folks objecting to this um, stop and frisk Um, had the better talking points and a sympathetic media, which created the um, collapse
1: of the program. Tim, um, Channel 12 has covered it. Providence Journal this morning. Two top Mediello aides appear before the Rhode Island Convention Center grand jury. Frank Montanaro, Leo Skenyon. Uh, This thing has moved. We've talked about it. Moved at seemingly very quick pace. There's also a financial person from the Convention Center, Auditor General Dennis Hoyle, confirmed he testified before the grand jury. If you would touch on, you know, they, they come out of court like they did yesterday and tell Channel 12, at least, in the journal, well, I, I can't really get into what, what I said. And then they go into, you know, I was truthful, I cooperated, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you could just touch on right now your evaluation on this grand jury, um, that they're there, and uh, although, you know, Uh, Peter Neroni, Attorney General, they won't confirm or deny, but by all accounts, people that have come out of that have kind of led us to believe exactly where this is leading. It has to do with the convention center. It has to do with the actions by Speaker Mattiello. I have a number of different questions, but just first first, uh, glance your reaction to what was reported yesterday about the two top aides with the grand jury.
0: Yes. Certainly, those two top aides could have gone into that grand jury and pled the fifth as to everything and then come out and say, I answered all the questions to the best of my ability. And that would be a true statement to say uh, to the best of I'm not implying that they did plead the fifth. But if they did and came out and said, I answered all the questions to the best of my ability, that would be a correct statement, they're not under oath, so they could really say anything they want to the media about what did or didn't happen in the grand jury room, if I was representing either of those guys, I would say, come out of there and, you know, give a statement such as, I answer the questions to the best of my ability, don't get into the specifics, don't provide details. I mean, these are not ordinary folks being called into a grand jury. Um, They also have high-profile political positions. And I'm certain that you know, the Mattiello team is trying to keep the best face on this as um, folks in the Mattiello you know, power structure come out of the grand jury. They wanna put the best face they can on it. There's nothing to be gained by discussing the details of what went on in the grand jury room. Uh, they gotta come out saying, I did great job. I answered all the questions. I don't think there's a crime here and I've got nothing more to say because I respect the process. That's the best they could possibly say. That's the script they're sticking to. That's the most effective from a legal standpoint, and it's certainly the most effective from a political standpoint. And, you know, the political overlay on this whole process um, is front and center.
1: Now, the grand jurors, the way we understand it, they can't come out and say to Channel 12, I'm sitting on the grand jury, I can answer the following questions. The Attorney General's people can't do that. But if someone came out and said, yes, I was asked the following ten questions, and here's how I answered, there's nothing stopping someone from answer, from uh, talking to the media in that way. That's true. Okay. I, and I mean, I, obviously, legally, you wouldn't. But I think it's a little bit, it's, it's a myth when people come out and say, well, as you know, I can't discuss it, that, that's, there's actually nothing preventing them. Now, whether or not the judge said, I'm going to encourage people you know, not to talk to the media, uh, when I've said it on trials, I mean, you're an attorney, but many times at the end of the day, the judge goes to the jurors and said, I want to remind you, don't discuss it with anyone, don't read about it, blah, blah, blah. Now, um, there's a discrepancy on whether or not they took the fifth. I mean, I've heard both things. Um, uh, but something I want to clear up, and that is this business of... Where someone says, I'd like to invoke the Fifth Amendment. You clear up, Tim Dodd. It is my understanding that you can't weave in and out of that. Meaning, you can't pick and choose, you know, I'll answer this one, but I'm not going to answer that one. Uh, You know, or I'll pass as if it's like Jeopardy or something. If you, as soon as you state that, it kind of, the way it describes it, it kind of, questioning kind of grinds to a halt. I can go in. And I can say, yes, I want to confirm, my name is John DePietro. I work at the State House. blah, 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 I work at live at this address, yes, I was hired at the, I can answer all those things. And then the moment they get into the area of, I want to bring your attention to the events of this particular date, if someone says then, I'd like to invoke my Fifth Amendment right, they can't then weave back and say, but if there's some other stuff you want to ask me, you can ask me some other stuff.
0: No, your, your synopsis is accurate. When you go in, all this, all the preliminary questions: where do you live? You know, how old are you? How long have you worked for the state? What's your job position? All of those things are preliminary, and there's no answer that could subject you to incriminate yourself. You know, if you if they said where do you live, I plead the fifth. That would be ridiculous, <laughs>
1: right? right.
0: And, and I've seen people attempt to do that in the court in court, and the judge would say, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute." Do you think you're going to incriminate yourself by telling us where you live? That's not the appropriate way to invoke the privilege. But once the questioner, the prosecutor, gets to the proper subject area where the uh, person being um, uh, giving testimony thinks that they're on a slippery slope to an area where they could incriminate themselves, you should invoke the privilege as soon as you can. Now let's assume that a question is asked which provokes the invocation of the Fifth Amendment privilege. That doesn't stop the questioning. The prosecutor can go on and ask all the questions they'd like to ask. What did you do? When did you do it? How did you know? Who told you to do it? Where were you? Who was there with you? Who did you talk to about it? Um, Each one of those questions would result in the person invoking the privilege. I see. So, typically they'd ask all the questions they want and the witness would keep invoking the fifth over and over. So who were you with? Plead the fifth. What time was it? Plead the fifth. What did you do next? Plead the fifth. Did you put anything in writing? Plead the fifth. Um, One invocation of the fifth doesn't cut off all the questioning. Um, Then you might, the prosecutor might weave back into an area where um, no privilege could be um, asserted. A different topic a different subject area but you know I think we all know where um, the prosecutors were going in this case and where it would be likely that the fifth would be invoked right so some folks have, have thought well if a witness is in there for a short amount of time they must have immediately invoked the fifth well not necessarily but possibly and we will not know that um, Anytime soon, we've also just seen the Supreme Court ruled against the governor in the 38 studios. That's right, uh, brand jury. yes. So you may never know exactly what was said by whom, by which people, and what questions if nothing further comes out of this criminally.
1: And Tim, conversely, oh. if if I if someone were in there for 45 minutes, but part of it is you're going down, name, where do you live, where do you work? Um, but then. I think that's interesting with a prosecutor. If I'm sitting on the grand jury, I'm listening to the questions of um, can you confirm, just as an example, can you confirm you called this person on this date at this time? And then the answer is I'd like to invoke my Fifth Amendment uh, privilege. Can you confirm you sent this email? So as a member of the grand jury, I'm listening to... Obviously, the the person testifying isn't answering, but I'm listening to them lay out questions that they were looking, that they're asking the individual sitting there. Yes, and the
0: the grand jurors are instructed that you know if the person is invoking the fifth, you know what inferences can be drawn from that. Some are appropriate and some are inappropriate, and that would depend on how well the prosecutor tells people on the grand jury what they can make of someone invoking their Fifth Amendment privilege. Um,
1: and now the green jurors can ask questions, right, Tim Dot.
0: They can ask questions as well, and sometimes that can take a while because the questions have to be properly posed, properly framed. Uh, sometimes the prosecutor has to sort of interpret and restate the question. Uh, one, one thing I do know, I, I'm quite sure that, certain that it's accurate, is this grand jury is the, pro- the lead prosecutor is uh, Stephen Danbrook, who was yes. with the AG's office for a long time. Yep, and he was one of the top prosecutors at the uh, U.S. Attorney's office. He
1: was acting U.S. Attorney even. Yeah.
0: Yes, he was, and Peter Nerona, um induced him or cajoled him to come yes. back to the AG's office. Um, he's a very very fine prosecutor, and I think that. If I was concerned, as any of those folks going before the grand jury, the fact that he's running the show uh, would give me uh, cause to be concerned because he's very good at
1: what he does. And his co-counsel is Andy Goldstein, who was also with him and Peter Rona at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I, I'll talk about this just because I have uh, put this out and published it on my website. These are two seasoned prosecutors. These are not... Somebody that just stumbled into the office, young kids, inexperienced, whatever. The way I understand it, Tim Dodd, it would be fair to describe those two individuals as kind of like the A-team within the Attorney General's office.
0: Oh, yeah, those are the top guns. They Peter, are. Yeah. Peter, put, Peter put his top guns. If, if there's going to be an indictment, he's put in his top people. Yep. And if there's no true bill, he's going to be able to come out and say, listen, I put my top people on this thing. We'd, we delved into this quickly with our best people and there was no true bill. We couldn't have done more. So whether, whether there's an indictment or whether there's no true bill, Peter Narone is gonna have very good talking points to say, I tried my best and look, we got the results of an indictment or I tried my best and there was no true bill. Um, no one's gonna be able to second guess the, the way in which he went about this. And remember, John, we've talked about it before, but look at the um, grand jury that occurred after the guy stole the state trooper's vehicle and stole his gun and had the pickup truck, and he got blasted on the on-ramp to Route 95 over near the, uh, the mall. One would have thought that some of the cops there might have acted improperly. There was a very quick grand jury, and boom, no true bill against any of them. Yep. So it wouldn't be surprising if after all of this, there is no true bill. I know you and I differ on whether the statute will be satisfied based upon the conduct of anyone on the Mattiello team. Um, you might be right. I might be right. I don't all know. Time will tell. We'll see.
1: But one thing that people, I, I am curious, do you, do you think after this, um, because it is hanging over there, it then just kind of hangs, um, typically would the attorney general's office issue some kind of a statement saying, um, that we could not find anything. So a no true bill, or does it just, it remains open. And then who knows, maybe six months from now, they come upon more information or a year from now. Um, there is a statute of limitation on this, but will, will we know, or will it then just float out? And internally they feel they just, it wasn't there.
0: Well, in in a high-profile case like this, I think that if there's an indictment, that speaks for itself. If there's no true bill, I think that would be also announced by um, Peter Narona's office. In the federal system, you could be the target of a grand jury, and it simply dies on the vine, and you never know whether you're safe or whether you're about to be indicted. And you'll never know for sure until the statute of limitations has expired in the federal system, they hold their cards much closer to the vest and you don't really know where you stand. On this one, because it's so high profile with a political overtone, um I I think that either way this comes out, there'll be an announcement by the AG's office.
1: Folks, good afternoon. It's John DePietro. We speak with our legal expert attorney, Tim Dodd. Tim, I want to jump into just some other stories while we have it. Uh, Harvey Weinstein. Now, the latest is there are developments. The jury right now is uh, is sitting there. They are deliberating. They have asked for some information. They seem to be going uh, victim by victim, witness by witness, uh, asking for information on that. I, I know it, it almost seems a little bit early but any thoughts uh, as of yet regarding Harvey Weinstein it, it's in
0: terms of the charges that he's facing in in the state of um, New York it's it's a little confusing because the way they charge is much different than how this would be charged in Rhode Island the, the most serious count is that he's is, it's for a, quote-unquote, predatory sexual assault. Yep. And a lot of the um, witnesses who have testified for the prosecution uh, are testifying regarding conduct for which Harvey Weinstein can't be charged, like Annabella Sciorra, whatever her name is. Right. Her allegations are too old that uh, the statute of limitations has expired. So I believe she is one who's giving an anecdotal story about what happened to her, but she's not one of. I think she's not one of the victims for whom there's an actual criminal charge.
1: Which which one? Oh. Annabella Sciarra. Yes. Yeah, oh.
0: Okay. There's, there's so many of them. There's another woman.
1: Um, Mir- Miriam or Mimi or something like Mimi, that. Yes. Mimi
0: Halie Halie or something. Right. I'm not. I'm not joking.
1: No. No. I understand.
0: them. I, the, the names are convoluted for me. Um, but it seems like the jury is going through each of the victims, looking at their story, looking at their direct examination, listening to the cross-examination, then they're asking for all of the uh, written communication, the text, the emails uh, between Harvey and the alleged victims. And it's quite curious because Annabella said that she never whispered a word about this incident to anybody Yet Rosie Perez, um, the actress, is up there saying that um, uh, Annabella was um, talking to her on the phone saying, I think I was raped. I'm not sure, but I think I was raped, Right. Um, which isn't helpful for the prosecution. Um, The other woman, Mimi or whatever her name is, um, claims to have been raped, but then weeks later had another sexual encounter which resulted in intercourse and other sexual... Um, contact between Harvey and her, um, she says, oh yeah, that happened, but I really didn't want it to happen. But she's not saying it was a rape, so was it consensual, what was it? Um, You know, these victims, um, in most cases, continue to have friendly relationships, uh, correspondence, letters, emails, and other social interactions with Harvey after the alleged rapes, which seems um, counterintuitive that you would continue to have a friendly relationship with the guy that raped you. Um, that's something the prosecution has to contend with. Um, I think that this guy is just such a creep and the pretrial publicity has been so overwhelming. I mean, do I think he's going to be acquitted? I, I, I still think it's going to be a hung jury which will result in a mistrial. I, I think that the jurors, jurors are going to be split. who's going to say, this guy's a creep, he did it. And there's going to be some of the jurors say, well, he's a creep, but um, the, the conduct of these uh, victims is most curious. It, it doesn't make sense the way they behaved after the alleged rape. Um, that seems to be a potent mixture for a mistrial.
1: But it would be fair to say, Tim Dodd, that there's a, an interesting part of this that makes it different is it's the power dynamic. I mean, by all accounts, he is an absolute creep. He took advantage of his position. It's the old thing of the, the Hollywood casting couch. There's no doubt that a number of them now may have remorse, regret. I can't believe I did that with that guy. Uh, But the power dynamic of it, it, but there is a line between that and the forced act of a sexual assault. And that that seems to be where the Weinstein camp were somewhat successful in bringing that out during the trial.
0: Yeah, I think the Weinstein team on CROSS did a great job. Um, They they also had a couple of decent witnesses of their own um, to undercut what the victim's story was. I mean, there's two countervailing forces here, as you say. Let's assume it was 10 years ago, before the Me Too movement. Um, these um, alleged victims probably would have thought, oh, I could never come forward against Harvey Weinstein. He's this powerful mogul in Hollywood. No one's going to believe me. Um, I'm not going to be able to get prosecutors interested in this, you know, because I didn't go to the hospital. I didn't go to the cops. There's no forensic evidence, etc." So 10 years ago... There probably would have been less appetite for the victims to come forward or for the the, uh, prosecutors to take the case forward to trial. Now we've got Me Too. Now the floodgates open and everyone's accusing Harvey. So it's now time for everyone to come out and say, you know what, he did it to Me Too. Yeah, he did it to Me Too. And now the prosecutors are in a situation where we've got a high profile defendant with many accusers, but they're in a position because of Me Too, they're taking a fundamentally weak case to trial. It's a case with a lot of holes in it, and it's a case that, um, you know, as we've discussed before, Weinstein's team did a good job of exploiting all the holes in the case. This case has the element of um, consensual sexual encounters, which differs from, again, Bill Cosby, where the victims were knocked out. Right. could not give consent. He was doomed. Here, consent is a real potent part of this um, equation. Did these women consent at the time? Um, you know, they say, well, you know, he, he, he was uh, penetrating me, and I just kind of went into a zone, and I froze. Oh, God. You know, and, and perhaps that's true. Right. And I, I'm not um, discounting what the victims say, but if you're a juror listening to it, and now the guy is done with um you know penetration through intercourse and now he's performing oral sex and the woman just lays there she doesn't kick she doesn't hit him in the head she doesn't try to get off the bed she doesn't try to run away now i the, the prosecution brought in psychologists who would talk about victims reactions sure. and why they do what they right. do but the jurors also hearing the other side of the coin from the weinstein teams you know that this was consensual why didn't they didn't ask, well, why didn't you get off the bed? Right. Why didn't you no, run uh, away? Why didn't you go to the cops? Why didn't you go yeah. to the
1: hospital? I, there's, gonna, there's a lot of whys. I want to jump into one last part about this. Jurors also requested a review email sent by Harvey Weinstein to a private detective in 2017, red flagging the actress as a top priority for investigation. And that had to do with Annabella Sciorra, who had been on The Sopranos, who... Um, specifically place Sciora's place in the criminal charges. On Tuesday, the jury sent New York Supreme Court judge questions about accuser Annabella Sciora, specifically Sciora's place in the criminal charges, and this business of red-flagging the actress as a top priority for uh, investigation for his private detective. Could that be seen, that maybe he also, uh, in his interaction with her, damage him as then... He I'm actually answering my own question. He could just say that he didn't know what they were making accusations and maybe just wanted to have a detective check them out.
0: Yes, or you could you could also spin a negative inference that he knew that she was out there in the weeds sure. and didn't have dirt on her if, if this came to pass, which it ultimately did. Yep. Um, it this seems like a very proactive, very engaged jury. Sometimes that can be tough for the trial judge because as the jury starts asking for more and more things and getting more and more demanding, the court has to be careful to not um, over comply with things that the jury should not be getting or revisiting um, and not alienating the jury by not giving them what they want. Yep. The judge, ha- the trial judge has a bit of a type tightrope when the jury starts asking more and more questions they kind of get an appetite for it and they ask for even more and then even more and at some point the judge will have to um, rein them in or kind of remind them that their purview is based upon the evidence that was presented. A lot of times jurors want things that weren't even presented at trial and then the judge has to say you know I've got to put a stop to this. Um, I still think it's going to be a hung
1: jury. Tim Dodd, before we let you go, I'm also uh, just seeing debate ratings. Last night after the debate, a lot of uh, Bloomberg people say, well, no one watches these debates anyway. It had an average of 20 million people watched a huge number for television these days. But Tim Dodd, just touch on this uh, lawsuit in Connecticut where you have these high school girls and they're competing in track. And one of them even said, "You know it's so demoralizing. you show up. we already know who's going to win. There are two boys they they excuse me two transgender athlete students they had been I believe both of them had been on the boys track team. they switched over they're transgender now they're at the state meet against um running as in the girls race, and there's now some of the Connecticut students they launched this lawsuit against them it's
0: it's a really, really fascinating lawsuit that they've launched. Um, The whole notion of parity in girls' sports and boys' sports, or men and women's sports, excuse me, starts with Title IX. And that required, if you're getting federal funding, that there's gotta be parity in how much you're spending on men's sports versus women's sports. Because in the old days, all the money would be spent on men's basketball and football and nothing would be spent on female sports. And the Title IX litigation, which occurred back in the 80s primarily, um, did a lot to correct the imbalance that had been there. Title IX has morphed into many, many, many things far beyond its original intent. Now, when you look at what's happening here, Title IX should be protecting women's sports And it appears that the Connecticut, uh, I don't know if it's the school board or the Department of Education, has overstepped uh, its authority by allowing transgendered men to compete in women's sports. Now, okay, so these couple of uh, young men self-identify as women, and they say, well, we want to be girls, and we want to run with the girls' um, track team. I think that the, the complaining females here have a legitimate beef with this because they're not competing against females, they're competing against males. And The guys might act like women, feel like women, think like women, dress like women, but they still have male genitalia and male hormones, which will make it different when women are running in races against males. Um, the males win all the races. The women are denied um, the chance to win, the chance to get scholarships. To, you know, they're, they're always coming in second and third or worse against these guys. So I think that their litigation is meritorious and it's going to set up an interesting um, clash of the um, Progressive-thinking folks who think that if you're transgendered, that's, that's, the, that's the bottom line that should rule the day, versus Title IX folks who say, well, wait a minute, this is all intended to help women in sports, and this conduct undercuts Title IX. I, I think at the end of the day, the complaining plaintiff girls will prevail, but it's going to be high profile because it's going to put under the legal microscope um, a lot of sort of new age thinking about what it means to be transgendered and self-identifying as whatever you feel like uh, self-identifying on. And putting that up against the stark reality of sports competition. I think the girls have a
1: great case. Folks, he is our legal expert, Rhode Island Sherney, Tim Dodd. Tim, great to talk to you. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, John. Take care. All right, folks, uh, with that, 766-1380. This portion of the John DiPietro Show is brought to you by Case. Remember, whether it's lunch, dinner, drinks in the lounge, stop by Case. They're waiting for you. So big news of the day is uh, Roger Stone received 40 months. How about those debate numbers? Holy cow. 20 million. So, so much for um, the Bloomberg people. Governor Mundo, the Bloomberg people. I'm just seeing uh, jurors pour through testimonies deliberations Weinstein trial into the third day. Uh, they were trying to say, well, you know, no one watches these debates anyway. So uh, what's the big deal? Doesn't matter that he bombed. Um, no one watches. Well, we'll see about that. A lot of people watched it. I think it's over. I think Bernie is the nominee. I think Mike Bloomberg got eviscerated last night. He absolutely got pummeled. And uh, Elizabeth Warren took him down. Elizabeth Warren was waiting for that moment, and Bloomberg walked into it. As somebody was saying on, uh, online, he brought a wallet to a knife fight. <laughs> Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg absolutely got eviscerated last night. All right, it's John DiPietro, 766-1380, a lot more ahead on this Thursday on this uh, Thursday. Do you own and operate a small business and you rely on communicating with your employees while they're out in the field? Well if you do, this is the perfect time to make the switch to T Mobile for Business. This is Sal with T Mobile for Business and I encourage you to reach out to me today at 401 0 This is the perfect time to make the switch to T Mobile for Business. Right now we have unlimited plans with unlimited talk, text and data with no contract, great deals on iPhones and Samsungs. This is the perfect time to make the switch to T-Mobile for Business. Stop wasting money, call me for a free consultation at 401-332-0000. Again, 401-332-0000. Stop wasting money with your current cell phone carrier. Call me today, Sal with T-Mobile for Business. 401-332-0000. Well remember if you're ever in an accident, it can happen. Hello there, Suzanne. This is Joe Vignold. Everyone was asking for him on Facebook Live. Folks, remember West Fountain Autobody, Suzanne Grasso. If you're ever in an accident, call West Fountain Autobody today, 272-3340. It's Kenny, it's Patricia, it's your vehicle. They will repair your vehicle. Lightning fast, showroom condition. On top of that, most importantly, Joe. They're going to work for you, not the insurance company. If you ever find yourself in an accident, and it can happen, pick up the phone and call West Fountain Auto Body. 272-3340. 272-3340 for West Fountain Auto Body. You are listening to the John DiPietro Show on 99.9 FM and 1380 AM. News Talk WNRI. This portion of the John DePetro Show is brought by Quartz Plumbing of Cumberland. Do you need a plumber, plumbing emergency? C-O-R-T-S, Quartz Plumbing of Cumberland. 401-714-8478. 401-714-8478. Family owned and operated over 20 years. Maybe you're having a problem with your drain or maybe you're having a problem with your pipes. Fully licensed and insured serving Rhode Island and Massachusetts for pure and maintenance. Bathroom remodel. Victor is very talented. Or hot water tank. Call Quartz Plumbing of Cumberland today. A plumber you can rely on and trust. 401-714-8478-401-714-8478 401-714-8478 for Quartz Plumbing of Cumberland. Uh, what those debate numbers mean, and that, that's a huge number. What does it mean? It means big ratings. And there's another one next week. Think about that. So Mayor Mike Bloomberg, I don't think they're going to have um, CBS News announces moderators for the South, Ca- South Carolina Democrat debate. So that is um, happening on February 25th. So that is, I, I believe it is, next Tuesday night, Nora O'Donnell, Gail King, um, let's see, Margaret Brennan, Major Garrett, and Bill Whitaker. So, um, let's see, blah, blah, blah. So CBS has it. It should be a big number in South Carolina, but big numbers last night. Now, what do you think happens to the Bloomberg campaign? All eyes are going to be on former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg to see just... And if you miss the the beating he took last night, you don't want to miss this. And, and the problem for... New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And I want to be very clear. I think it's over. I think Bernie Sanders last night showed he is the front runner. He is the best one on the stage. I'm not saying I agree with him. But in that type of setting and handling a debate, Bernie Sanders was the best one on the stage last night. But Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, they were at their strongest when they were attacking Mayor Mike Bloomberg. And he was flat. He had a terrible first hour. He bombed. They were killing him up there. Absolutely just destroyed him, took him down. Warren and Biden are going to be, and, and Bernie doesn't really have to lift a finger, even though he goes after Bernie Sanders, uh, doesn't have to lift a finger because those two, and whoever's left of Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, they're going to be going after Bloomberg as well. He's gone, GP. True.
0: With his talk show yep. on your radio,
1: he's John DiPietro, Tune in your radio. Go get him, Johnny D. Folks, thank you for listening. It's John DiPietro. Enjoy this Thursday. We're back tomorrow at 11. Uh, remember, visit the website, dipietro.com, D-E-P-E-T-R-O.com. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Stay tuned. The John Dion program is next, right after the 2 o'clock news right here on AM 1380. We are an official Rhode Island inspection station as well. WNRI and W236CW One Socket, 1380 AM and 95.1 FM.